Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. Hello everyone, we have a special edition of Weather or Not. We rarely think about the mangroves that exist across South Florida, yet they are an integral part of our ecosystem. But every once in a while, a hurricane comes across and batters them. Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez has been working on this issue for quite a while and brings us this health checkup on our mangroves as we kick off weather or not. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the storm station. On this episode of Whether or Not, Dr. David Lagomasino, Assistant Professor at East Carolina University and Assistant Scientist at Coastal Studies Institute, joins us to talk about the mangroves in Southwest Florida impacted by Hurricane Irma in 2017 and how remote sensing has helped provide answers and give us a better understanding on how natural disturbances, among other factors, are shaping the coastline. First of all, thank you for joining us on this special edition of Weather or Not. You're somewhat of a Miami native, and I think that that connection in knowing the ins and outs of the area that you grew up in is very important, and it makes your work in coastal issues stand out even more and personal as well. So, David, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became an expert in geological sciences? Um, so sure. So I yes, I, I still consider myself a, a <laughs> Miami native. I haven't been there for a while, but definitely head back home every chance I get to see family. And so, you know, being there and, and sort of the that environment of Miami, going to the beach, going to the Everglades, right, going to the Keys, right? You definitely start to appreciate what those kind of coastal systems have right, for the communities along the coast, right, and, and sort of the, the environments that we get to visit and to recreate in, right, but we're also sort of pulling resources from that, and so kind of seeing the things change over time and now going back with this sort of new vision of geology is kind of quite interesting to look back and think about, well, how things have changed in Miami over the last 20 plus years, um, and so you know, what got me into geology is kind of an interesting path because I started as, as pre-med. I wanted to be a, a neurosurgeon. I wanted to open people's heads up and, and, <laughs> and look into the brain. And so I wanted to do that my entire life until I got to college. And then I started taking pre-med classes and figured out it, it wasn't for me. And so from there, I started jumping around, taking some other classes, and that's when I, I took a, an intro to geology course. And the professor there, this was at FIU at Florida International University, Sir Dr. Neptune Shrivel, got me excited about geology. I was like, what are these rocks? I need to know more about this. And sort of understanding the, the way that the earth works and the earth is interacting with the oceans and the atmosphere. And... All of that just kind of clicked. And from there, it just continued. I just wanted more. I wanted to learn more about the system, how it works. 
And particularly from, from my interest is knowing that coastal system, right? Being from Miami, seeing what, you know, what was happening in terms of sea level rise, urban expansion along those, what all of those kind of played in terms of the role of our evolving coastline. And from there, I went on to a master's in geology and then a PhD in geology. And here today, still looking at how the earth works, but now adding all of those other other components, right? So adding you know, what the water is doing, what the, the ecology, right? So what's the vegetation doing on top? And also now more importantly, what are people doing to actually influence the processes on the coastline? So your specialty is in remote sensing and you worked at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and also at the University of Maryland doing remote sensing research where you gain most of your experience, right? Correct. Yeah. So I, I did a bit for my for my PhD when I was at FIU. Started getting into that. I didn't know really too much about remote sensing, but I started getting into that at, at FIU. And then that's when after I graduated, I went up to, to NASA Goddard. And that's where, yeah, you start working with the best of the best in the field, right? Um, and some pretty bright minds. And that's when things sort of, I really dug into the remote sensing. It was like, this is really cool stuff, right? To get this sort of vantage point that I like to say is, you know, from out of this world, right? You're looking down on the earth from space. You, you definitely get a cool perspective. And jumping on that topic, can you explain to our listeners what is remote sensing? So there, there's a few different definitions of what remote sensing is. I, I like to go pretty basic and it's really just, you know, the ability to capture information at some distance and sort of not being there. So this can be a wide range of things. Most of us are walking around with a remote sensing device or think of our cameras on our phones. That is a type of remote sensing. But traditionally it's thinking about how to use satellites and pictures from planes or drones to really capture the landscape and understanding how that landscape is kind of changing over time, right? Using a variety of different sensors, but the idea being that you are not there to actually collect the data, something at some distance is being able to collect that data for you. I actually took some remote sensing classes at FIU. And in fact, right before I landed the gig at Channel 7 as the weather producer, I interviewed with the County of Port St. Lucie for a GIS analyst position. And I had to sit in front of a panel and just talk about the research that I did. And it was on ways to restore eroded beaches along a portion of Brevard Flagler counties. And I had to discuss all sorts of things happening along the coastline, make up a plan and test sand quality off the coast and talk about money. And towards the end, I actually was offered the position. This was a long time ago. This was like back in 2005. They did offer me the position. And then at the same time, Channel 7 called. So I was like, my passion was in weather. I'm like, okay, this is where I'm gonna, I'm going to go. But I, I never got to pursue GIS, but I certainly loved it. I used ArcGIS. Yeah, yeah. ArcGIS is still around and it's definitely gone. You know, it's much better. And now there's open source versions of it. 
but it, there's definitely been a, a boom in terms of remote sensing just because of open access now to lots of imagery and open source data, right? So it's not just, you know, United States and, and European countries doing this. Everyone around the world is, has access to this data. And that's like the cool part of what's happening here. That's what I always thought was interesting on uh, the fact that there was so much data available and the imagery just gave you a really good perspective on how the world is changing around you and you don't even have to be there. Exactly. And, and that's, I think, the sort of cool perspective is that, you know, you drive to and from work every day, right? You're seeing the same thing. So, yeah, you see change kind of happening there, but you don't think about well, all of that other change that's happening around you. But when you take that snapshot from a satellite looking down and, you know, we've been, you know, there's been sort of constant satellites up there for now 50 years. We just had Landsat 9 launch this past Monday, right? So now 50 years of continuous data, this kind of very similar type imagery. So it can be consistent. You can see it, right? You can see those spots that you've never been to. And you're like, oh my God, look how how fast Las Vegas has grown in the past 50 years, right? Or even Miami in the last 50 years. I mean, we can see that edge just moving closer and closer to the Everglades, right? When I was in Miami, it, we were the Everglades and now it's expanded another five miles, right? So it's, you can see that now everywhere around the world. So now we're gonna get into the mangrove of Southern Florida. When Hurricane Irma struck in September 2017, it was strong enough that mangrove forests died. And I think it's important for people to understand why mangrove forests are so vital to us. Sure. And and I'll start with, you know, South Florida in particular, but this goes beyond just South Florida, right? These are coastal ecosystems kind of everywhere. Um, But in, in terms of South Florida, right, these are, you know, these these coastal forests, right? So they're adapted to salt water, but they're really that first line of defense if we think about it, right? As a storm is coming in, there's lots of wind and wave and these mangrove forests provide that sort of buffer against that wind and wave energy. And so that that's that sort of ecosystem service as we call it for, you know, on, in the case of humans, but these are also sort of major um, landscapes for migratory birds and fisheries, right? So lots of different fish have different life stages in these mangrove areas, right? So for folks that are fishing in the, in the Keys and Florida Bay, right, you need those mangroves there to make sure that you have that next generation of fish to catch. And they're also sort of connected then to the, the coral reefs, right? They're sharing these different life stages as these fish are sort of moving around. So they're really important in terms of having you know, that sort of biodiversity, allowing you know, the critters to thrive in these areas, right? But they're also providing lots of sort of services for us. I mentioned you know, the, the protective sort of ecosystem services. And I would say for, for South Florida, we don't use them, at least not now as we used to, or maybe other countries around the world are using it. So, for other places around the world, in the Caribbean, in Africa, and, and in, in Asia, they're using that wood from the tree to build their homes, right? They are coastal communities that are building their homes out of the tree trunks. They are using the timber to 
to make charcoal. So they fire their kitchens with charcoal from, from mangroves. So that's their fuel, their shelter, right? So these are important for sustaining their livelihoods um, in, in communities around the world. So there's, you know, yes, in South Florida, we're not using them maybe to be building our homes or, or you know, fueling our, our grills, but in many other places around the world, that's how they are doing that and how they're sustaining their livelihoods. And can you tell us how much of the mangrove died and what was able to bounce back after Irma? Sure. So, you know, this analysis that we did, what we were able to identify is that about almost 11,000 hectares. So that's about 26,000 football fields. So that's, it's a lot of area. Yeah. Um, died after this storm. And so we're still kind of following up and doing this analysis on it, but this is really what was not able to recover within sort of that first year after the storm. And so it's a pretty large area. It's about 10% of the mangroves within Everglades National Park. So it's a pretty significant area that, that was impacted by Hurricane Irma. And with all of the data that's collected before and after Irma, can you discuss why some of the mangrove forests couldn't recover? So with the storm, I'll, I'll say first that these storms are actually important for bringing sort of nutrients into the system as well. So they do kind of help to fertilize these forests. But in terms of that area of, of the, the spots that could not recover, right, what we found was that they're really occurring in these low-lying areas. So yes, everything in South Florida is kind of low-lying, right? Everything is at sea level. But what we found is that there's these, you form these little bowls. And so you have water that gets trapped in those bowls and it's not able to flush out back to the ocean. And so when you have storm surge that comes in from the storm or lots of rainfall, that water sort of pools in these bowl shapes of the Everglades or of the sort of coastal landscape. And so that water stays there for a very long time. And so we hear on, on the news about, right, water is what kills during a hurricane. That's exactly the case. The water that, in this case for the mangroves, the water that stays there. The surge, stay, yeah. Right, just stays on it and it stays for too long and it just, it pushes those mangroves over the edge. So you have that sort of initial physical damage from the wind, which is, yes, it's detrimental, but they're gonna recover from that. But when you have that wind damage, that physical damage, plus then this water damage and, and that water staying there, that's where they're just not able to recover and that's when things start to die. Also, can you explain what happens to the ecosystem if mangrove forests just disappear? Right, so if mangroves were to, to just disappear, I would say there's a, a number of things that would happen, right? I mean, one, you're losing that sort of habitat for, right, for birds and for all those critters that are living in the mangrove forest. But in the case for, let's say, South Florida, right, you start to lose that shoreline, right? And you're, then you start to erode that shoreline. So now your ocean is coming closer and closer to your house, to the water supply for South Florida. Right? And so once you start bringing in the ocean closer, then you get saltwater, what we say saltwater intrusion, right? So the ocean becomes closer to land. 
we're pumping out a lot of water and that ocean gets into our groundwater supply. So then we have to keep moving our wells. And that's what Florida has done for the last hundred years is moving the sort of the, the well, the municipal well supply further and further inland because we're losing that area of the coast. So we're, we're losing that buffering capacity from the storm and that protection that we get from, from mangroves. But then we're also bringing the ocean and all of those ocean processes that come in with it. So it, it basically causes like a domino effect. It also impacts obviously the, the marine life and everything that relies on the mangrove. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's all those, all those, again, the critters. And then you think about the, the fisheries that are next to those mangroves, you're changing that habitat. Um, and so you're losing that habitat, you're retreating that shoreline and then, you know, essentially moving again, the yeah. ocean closer. Now you also mentioned to me prior to the interview that there's some relationships between storms and drought in Florida, but also in the Caribbean as well. Can you describe what's been discovered? Uh, so what we're starting to see is right that droughts also have an important effect on these ecosystems, right? Yes, they are um, salt tolerance wetlands that can take you know salinity and flooding conditions. Right? But what happens when there's drought is that you start to lower that sort of fresh water that's into the system, right? And so, yes, they can take salt, but when it starts to get a little too salty for too long, it starts to stress them out a bit more. And so, you know, this is more of what we say, maybe more of a chronic uh, symptom, right? So that there's a, a bit of pressure that's on them each particular time. And so they're, they're not as healthy as they can be. Now, let's say you have a, a drought condition where now the mangroves have been, you know, um, a bit stressed out for the last couple of years. Then you have a major storm come through and you can actually do more damage because, you know, this population of, of mangroves was under pressure. We'll say, I like to kind of say that they were, had pre-existing conditions. And now with those pre-existing conditions, you now have you know, some type of flu that comes through and that they're just not able to deal with both the stress of that drought and the stress of that hurricane at the same time. And so what we're seeing now is these sort of interacting effects of both drought and cyclones. So we do see that there is an increase in sort of cyclone activity and intensity and how long sort of the cyclones are on land for, um, and we're also seeing an increase in droughts. So with that, you're also increasing the probability that droughts and hurricanes happen at the same time. And so for Hurricane Irma uh, and Maria as well, right, the 2017 season um, occurred in an area that was under severe drought conditions. If we think about Puerto Rico, Hispaniola, and Cuba, they were all sort of impacted by this drought. Then you have a strong hurricane come through and you're doing, you know, you sort of exacerbate that damage because now you have two of these extreme weather events occurring in the same spot. I always try to describe to people whenever we're under drought that we need the rain. We just don't need all of it at once. Too much of a good thing is not a good thing. 
Exactly. And that's the thing too is, yeah, you're under drought and oh, well, now we had a lot of rainfall, but yeah, too much rainfall at any one time, then you're creating other issues, right? And so it's it's a balance of when and where and you know how long that rain actually happens. Now, we know tropical disturbances is a huge factor, but what would you consider are other factors that contribute in reshaping the coastline? Number one thing on there is, is us, is humans. Um, really, it really is. So we recently did analysis, a, a global analysis on mangrove losses around the world. And what we found is that about 62% of loss of mangroves around the world since 2000 is related directly to humans, with almost about 50% being the conversion to shrimp ponds or rice paddies. Right? So when you have shrimp or you have rice, it's probably coming from an area that had you know, mangroves converted to these areas. And so, yes, in terms of shaping our coastline, it really is sort of a, a human dominant process. But I would say too is, right, you mentioned, right, these cyclones, but as humans are changing that coastline, we change the sort of geologic processes, right? So changing how the sediment moves around the ocean and the coastal ocean, right? So you might be increasing or decreasing the sediment supply. And that is going to change, you know, where an inlet might open up or where an inlet might close or where something might get flooded or not flooded. And it's really, you know, changing that humans changing the coastlines that is really affecting then how we see our coastline. And are you aware of any ongoing efforts to restore mangroves to the shoreline? Yeah, so that, and I would say in, in recent years, there's been really a big push for mangrove restoration. And so I'll start close, close to home, South Florida. <laughs> uh, and just, I think, a couple weeks ago, there was, you know, a restoration effort going on in Fruit, Fruit Creek Park. So if, you drove, if you've driven down Tamiami Trail, going to Marco Island, you have seen this area of dead mangroves on the side of the road. Yes, I have. <laughs> and so they are starting to restore that. And so, you know, we mentioned that sort of bowl shape earlier. So in the case of Fruit, um, Fruit Creek Park is that, or Fruit Farm Creek, that's the name of it, that this was actually a bowl. And we cut a road that limited this connection of water. And so mangroves in this area have died off. So now those restoration efforts have just started to really allow water back into that system and allow it to flush out. So we are seeing that sort of at the local scale, but there are, you know, even national and international projects going on. So Senegal has a large area of mangroves and they are actually doing planting and restoration activities, some of the largest in the world to restore their mangrove ecosystems there because local communities are using that for, you know, collecting oysters and clams that live within, within the mangrove forest. And as well as there are international efforts. So the Global Mangrove Alliance, kind of this group of some of the major international NGOs um, are, have come together and say, we need to do, we need to protect these mangrove coastlines and help restore and make these sort of sustainable systems. 
And so there is sort of this international effort to identify, well, what might be the best areas for restoration um, and kind of identifying where we can do this effectively. Um, and so there's been a number of, of groups that are trying to figure out what is the best way to restore these mangrove ecosystems. And truthfully, you know, much like people say for the Everglades, you get the water right, you get the mangroves right. And what are you currently working on now at ECU? So my current research at, at, at ECU is I still do a lot of mangrove work. I, there's no mangroves anymore. We have salt <laughs> marshes. Uh, those mangroves are replaced by salt marshes as you go to a little bit colder regions. So focusing a bit on marshes, on seagrasses, but really understanding this sort of coastal system. And so using then that satellite imagery to identify how I like to say sort of the, the who, what, where, when, and why our coastlines are changing. And so thinking about how people affect that coastline, how we might use wetlands as sort of better barriers to protect our coastlines, but also using that information to, to look at that global perspective. So for the U.S., you know, we have lots of great data for the U.S., both on the ground, number of different organizations that are collecting this information. But for many countries around the world, we don't have that available. Right? There's no ground data to collect that's measuring water levels in, in many countries. So we can use then remote sensing and satellite data to, you know, yes, maybe use you know, what we're learning from Florida and from North Carolina and use that to improve the way we look at coastlines around the world. So we do a lot of work in West Africa and East Africa and South Asia where there's a lot of information that's missing. So we work closely with partners and organizations within those countries to help improve their understanding and modeling capabilities of their coastlines. Where risk management comes in too, I, I assume. Right, and, and that's, that's definitely part of it, it, is now then using that information and the models that we get from satellite data to improve, yes, right, that sort of management and decision-making. So we can then look at that sort of historic change that's happened, right? Look at, well, what were sort of policies and management decisions being done during that time and say, well, these are our observations. This is what we saw change. Well, how might we improve that? And how, you know, can we then model and make sort of predictions on what might happen in, 10, 20 years. And what is your overall goal comes out of your research? I really like this question. This is a good one. <laughs> um, so what am I hoping to get out of, of this research is I think a, a better appreciation of, of the need for these natural environments and how humans and the natural environments can coexist together, right? There's a reason why we like to develop on the coast. They're beautiful, right? If you, right, you go to the beach, you go out to these hundred percent. They they are beautiful locations, and it's because of those natural ecosystems that we want to go there, right? And so there is this sort of balance as well. We start developing along the coast, that then affects the natural ecosystem, and then that changes then what that coastline looks like, and we start to you know 
degrade our mangroves, yes, but our coral reefs, all of that stuff that we wanted to go visit is now being in, impaired. So being able to, to work together with the natural environment, I think is you know, one of the main things to get out of this. And we discussed earlier is you know, improved decision-making, right? So we have these observations from space to say, you know, yes, let's use this kind of bird's eye view or astronaut's eye view to look at, you know, how might we improve where we, where we put a port or where we put a bridge, right? Or a marina and sort of think about what might be the, the impacts of those particular things. So we can actually help to improve the way we decide where things might go along the coast. And lastly, I think is, is making sure that we put these tools and information in the hands of, of everybody, right? There, we have access to satellite imagery. It's free access. You know, many, you know, NASA, the European Space Agency provide that satellite data at no cost, right? And so being able to put that information in, in, in your hands, Vivian, or in anybody's hands to, you know, make their own decisions and see of those course. changes, right? Um, I think that's the main thing. And, and then provide the tools to be able to do that analysis. So folks can actually, you know, from, you know, Benin and Ghana, where we're working at in West Africa, for them to be able to, to pull this information together and use that to make better decisions on their coastline. And just from hearing you talk about your work, I bet that it's taking you to all different kinds of places. I've seen many mangrove forests around the world. <laughs> Where would you say is your favorite spot that you've been able to explore? I'll have to put two. So I have to do two on this one. So first, you know, part of this is my first visit to, to Mexico. And so we were doing work in in the Yucatan Peninsula. And so there's a biosphere reserve called Siancan that's like almost on the border between, with Belize. Okay. And the mangroves there are no taller than your knee. I mean, you know, just a few feet tall, but for as far as you can see, it's just these sort of short little mangroves. And it was just sort of this fantastic environment that you're like, is this real? Like you just kind of go through this and, you know, again, like as sort of far as the sky could see, you would see that. Um, and so for Mexico, that's some of the shortest mangroves in the world. But I say contrast that to our visit and work in Gabon. So Gabon is uh, kind of in West Africa, right around the bend. And you have very similar mangroves that are 60 meters tall. So almost 200 feet tall. Wow. And then you have, you know, you can't even put your arms around the tree. It's that big. You have these just towering trees that, you know, have the same sort of stilted roots. And so you're kind of walking through the forest, but it's a jungle gym, really, of kind of making your way through the roots. And, and so that was just sort of, again, sort of awe-inspiring landscape where you're just like, wow, look how big these trees are. Yeah. And so just a fantastic spot. And there we stayed with the local community. And so you see how the local villages live off of the land there, right? And are using the resources that come from those particular forests in their daily lives. Wow. That's so cool. Uh, it, it was fantastic. I mean, yeah. 
<laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. I hope we can have you back to talk more about your research. Of course. Thank you so much. This has been been fun. I, I, I love talking about mangroves. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the Storm Station 7 News. Next week on Weather or Not, recently, NOAA utilized a sail drone to get information from inside Hurricane Sam. This special surfboard with a sail on it, equipped with all sorts of technology, was deployed for the first time. Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez reported the exclusive here on Weather or Not. Now, she checks back and tells us what kind of information they gathered and how the sail drone performed. We'll have that story in our next edition of Weather or Not, which drops October 26. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7weather and of course live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about us. We need all the listeners we can get. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.